if you will, to uh, Romans chapter 3, and let's continue our study. And, and I do hope um, uh, that you like, I'm not so sure you like what I say, but I do hope that you like Bible study that is uh, painstakingly, uh, or, or makes a painstaking effort to, uh, to tell you everything that's in the text. Uh, you know, you really can't do that on a Sunday morning. You get a text that's uh, 15 verses, and there's, um, there's seven or eight things in there, and you've only got 30 minutes, and you just really can't get everything in there. But we don't have that problem here, because when we uh, when we get finished at you know uh, quarter till, we stop and we come back, and we pick it back up. And and I hope that that's not something that uh, uh, beleaguers you, because that's the way this Bible study uh, is handled, and we're wor- working through Romans, and we figure. Uh, that by the time uh, our next president finishes his second term in office, we uh, should be finished. Um, now, uh, we're at the verse 21, and, and I commented most or much about it, but there's a, still a couple of things that I didn't get to, and I want to go back tonight and kind of clean those up as we before we move on to verse 22. So let's read verse 21 and 22. But now... The righteousness of God, apart from the laws revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Now, the the couple of things that I did not clean up in verse 21 last week had to do with this uh, last clause um, in verse 21, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now we we looked at the rest of that stuff, uh, the rest of the that which is in there, but I did not say anything about that being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now the reason I wanted to draw us back to that is because I think there is an unfortunate um, misunderstanding or devaluation somehow of the Old Testament. Uh, we figure if uh, we can, uh, in fact, I had a, a lady come up to me this uh, tonight and she said. We had some friends come to church on Sunday. They're friends of ours from a previous church, and and uh, they sat down and uh, they were telling us as we walked out. She said, "Yes, we just loved it. It was great." She said, "But when we sat down, we opened the bulletin, and we heard that, he, and he saw that he was going to preach from Judges. We thought, oh my goodness, how could anybody preach anything out of Judges?" And, and there is a mentality that the Old Testament is uh, not as. Um, is to be highly valued as the old. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what Paul is saying here is that this gospel that he is going to take unbelievable uh, time to explain and and uh, present in detail, he says that this gospel was uh, witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, I think most of you already know that the, that the term law and the prophets was, um, I don't know what they call those things, but it's just a, a title that summarizes the Old Testament. When, the, when, somebody, when Jesus uses it a couple of times, when he talks about the Law and the Prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament. So what, what Paul is saying is that this gospel was witnessed, it was, it was contained in the Old Testament. Um, th- this gospel that I'm going to tell you about uh, has been planned from all eternity. It's no afterthought. It's not something that came into being because uh, uh, Jesus died on the cross. Um, this is this is something that is woven into the fabric of the uh, of the Old Testament. In fact, uh, most people would suggest that the first glimmer 
the first hint of the gospel occurs in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 15, which is called the Proto-Evangelion, which means first gospel, where, uh, where um, what is stated is that he shall bruise your heel, but he shall crush your head. The, the, the seed of the woman shall crush your head. So the, 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 the promise uh, of, a, of a, a redeemer that would uh, ultimately defeat man's uh, enemy first appears in um, Genesis 3.15. That's the third chapter of the book. But let me show you one. Uh, if you can find this real quick, go to see if you can find Genesis 15 um, rather hurriedly. Genesis 15, of course, this has to do with Abraham. But I don't know how you can become any more um, definitively gospelistic, if that's a word, uh, than what I'm about to read you. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and, you know, God says, Abraham, I'm going to do this with you, I'm going to do this with you. And then uh, Abraham says, well, how are you going to do that? And takes him outside, shows him all these stars. And, and look at verse 6. And he believed, that is, Abraham believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. That, ladies and gentlemen, is as clear of a gospel explanation or statement as anything you'll find in the New Testament. And it's found in the 15th chapter of Genesis. Um, the, you, get a, you get a sense in Romans 3.21 of the importance, at least in the mind of Paul, of the Old Testament. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, it, you're not doing your soul any favor by simply reading the Old Testament and not the, uh, the, the New Testament without the Old. I'm saying to you that there are portions of the New Testament that you will never grasp, you will never get a hold of, unless you understand things out of the Old Testament. For instance, the entire book of Hebrews. You will never get the book of Hebrews understood until you have wrestled with things in the Old Testament. Uh, indeed, the gospel is made clearer in the New Testament, admittedly. But that's not to say at all that you can't find it in there uh, woven in and out uh, constantly. In fact, I have a friend who says that in the Old Testament, if you look hard enough, you will find Christ on every page. Um, this righteousness that Paul is so eager to define and present uh, has been taught in the Old Testament the New Testament is hidden in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is is opened up and, and enlightened in the New. But those two things go together, and to neglect one is to do so to the neglect of our own souls. This is not an entirely new gospel. This is not a New Testament gospel. This is a biblical gospel, and the the um, and the New Testament, as I said, gives us greater clarity, indeed. But don't let that discourage you from um, um, becoming a, a student of and a lover of the old. I, I uh, on occasion, love to ask people, particularly who uh, um, aren't real fond of our positions as Christians. I love to, you know, they say, because sooner or later the, the, the conversation says, well, guys, I guess you believe that Bible then, don't you? And I said, well, yeah, I do. But, uh, um, he says, well, you know, I, that thing is just full of myth. And, you know, I said, well, tell me this. Um, um, could you tell me 
what do you think is the purpose of the book known as the Bible? And invariably, ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's some kind of version of this, but invariably it is. Well, the Bible just tells you, you know, how you're supposed to live and it gives you all kinds of codes of ethics as to what you know, what's right and wrong. And, you know, it just tells you what's, the, what's right and what's wrong. Actually, that's what the Bible does. And then it takes every fiber of spiritual muscle that I have to not say, you're an wrong <laughs> um, um, because that's not what it is about ladies and gentlemen from Genesis 3 forward is the story of how God has found a way to redeem sinful man it is the story of how, how redemption unfolded it is the story of how a God who could have gone back to heaven and had perfect fellowship with the Son and the, and the Spirit and let the whole of humanity head to hell after they broke the first covenant, but who didn't and decided to save. And so this book is really a story about redemption. And so to see Paul weave that in, even here as he's uh, uh, wanting to mention uh, the gospel, is, is just an interesting thing. One other thing that I, I, I want to say about the the adverb uh, that opens up verse 21, but now. The but is a conjunction, the now is an adverb. Um, it, just a little bit about the now. Um, one of the things that the New Testament is fond of doing is making sure that you understand that what they are describing is something that is being unfolded in the course of the history of man. For instance, when you come to Luke chapter 2 and, you know, and when Quirinius was governor of Syria, you know, the attacks was, uh, uh, you know, predicted or was called for. You get a lot of that stuff uh, over by the, the city of the Palms where Jericho, you know, right before. You, you get a lot of locale. You get a lot of, ge a lot of geography, a lot of history. And, and, and folks, you're not going to find that in other religious books. In fact, um, I, the, the name's Bultmann, um, surely the name Schweitzer, um, Albert Schweitzer would ring a bell. And, and, and I've said this before, you know that Albert Schweitzer, uh, who, was, who was an expert on Bach and a, quite an organist and quite a philanthropist, but he wrote a very devastating book aimed at Christianity. And the name of the book was uh, In Search of the Historical Jesus. Because what his premise was is that the, that the Jesus that you get in the New Testament is, is the Jesus of faith. He is not the Jesus of history. He is the Jesus of faith. That is, we've created him. We sat around campfires and uh, roasted marshmallows and all of a sudden came up with nice stories about Jesus and all of a sudden all of us agreed that those were true and we incorporated them into a book. And um, you've heard of the Jefferson Bible. Uh, Thomas Jefferson wanted to cut out everything that was not, you know, real historical truth. And he took the New Testament and cut out everything. And that book's still in existence, by the way. It's, uh, I want to say it's in Williamsburg, uh, but I'm not sure of that. But anyway, uh, ended up with 91 pages. Uh, but, but the point is, all I'm saying is that when Paul includes this now, he places what he is saying 
in time and space. Christianity is not just teaching, but it is the teaching that is based upon, grounded in, historical events. And that's what the, the higher critic has been trying to cut us off from since, since their first efforts. They're trying to say, you know, um, that, that the gods, uh, uh, let's see, they, they spirated from the navel of, the, from the navel of, uh, of Zeus. See, that's one religion. And then you got this one that says, and when Quirinius was governor, you know, in Syria, you, know, you got this thing that fixes things in the heart of history, which is a marked distinction between Christianity and, and uh, the other world religions. Okay, I, I think that uh, uh, cleans everything up in, in verse 21. Let's move now to verse 22. Gosh, we might make it through all of 22. Who knows? Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Now notice, I said this last week, but um, maybe you didn't hear me. Let me say it again. The term, the righteousness of God, is one of the most critically important contained anywhere in the Bible. You must know what the righteousness of God is generally speaking, is all about. And Paul resumes that. Um, you know, if, if left to ourselves, if we were writing a, a treatise on the gospel, we would, we would really want to race to um, um, four or five verses of just, I, just as I am before we got too far. And, and by the way, that's a wonderful song. I'm not trying, there's some great words in that song. But, but I'm saying... Paul is concerned about this term righteousness. He mentions it again, and it's, it, it, it doesn't mention forgiveness. Gang, salvation does not merely consist of our receiving forgiveness of sin. That is not really its primary object. Um, the gospel's primary object is a display it's a display of the righteousness of God so that, so that the whole universe will sit up and take notice of how righteous is this God of ours. Um, we do indeed, because we have sinned so high-handedly, need a positive righteousness. But how do we get it? How does this righteousness become ours? And as we have sought to do diligently, that righteousness does not become ours through any kind of work of the law. You know, I don't know how many of you are here, 250 of you are here tonight or so, and, and, uh, and I bet you you've heard that a thousand times. And, you know, and I want to say, I bet you all understand it. I will say this, I heard somebody say never before in the history of the church has a group gotten together of this size where everyone was a Christian. But I, I, I want to think just for the second, for a second, that all of you understand that the righteousness that is so needed by us is never going to be obtained by a work of the law. Now, 
I, I, may I add real quickly, that's not to say that the law has ceased to have any significance at all, and we'll see that later in chapter 3. But it is only to say that the law can in no way save you. It can in no way save you. But talk to somebody, talk to somebody out of this room. Talk to somebody, talk to somebody uh, at work tomorrow and tell them what, what I'm about to tell you and watch the blank stares. Well, now, wait a minute. Are, are you saying, are, are, is what you're saying then that it doesn't matter what I do? I, I, you know, I don't know how you can make it any more clear than I hope to make it in a, bit, in a half a minute, but they, they just don't get it. And, and you, can, you can get out a felt graph. You can invite Big Bird. But they don't get it because their eyes have been blind by the, by the God of this world. Notice what he says in verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Now, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, you must see that this text does not in any way teach universalism. Universalism is a view, and it's held by some even today, that all men are saved, ultimately Every man is going to make it into heaven, and all that we have to do is go out and announce it and proclaim it. All we have to do is just go tell them, and everything's going to be fine. That's universalism. But Paul makes clear that the only ones who are going to have this positive righteousness are those who, through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, believe. Faith is, is that hand that takes hold of a gift that God has offered us. But gang, now there is some, and I, I think I've done this before here, and I, for those of you who've seen, I, I ask your forbearance, but you, you gotta understand this. I, I've done this on numerous occasions, and, and I, and I want to say people have never yet gotten it right. Because I, I love to get people in the setting and, and um, you, you play with them, really. But, you know, I, I, I have a wonderful time. Unfortunately, they don't seem to, be, they don't seem to feel played with, you know. Uh, they feel humiliated, uh, you know, made an example of. And, and so, therefore, I decided that some of my fun needs to be uh, eliminated. But um, I always like to ask, what is the grounds of our justification before God? And inevitably, someone says, faith. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is categorically wrong. Faith is not the ground of God's justification of you. Faith is not the ground of anything. Um, faith is the hand that reaches out and lays hold of the provisions that God has made for us. It is not, 
faith that makes us righteous before God. God's righteousness is received and appropriated by faith. Yes. But faith does not save. If you are trusting in your faith to save you, you are guilty of something called fetism. That simply means faith in faith. Your faith does not, it, it is not that thing that saves. Jesus saves. Faith is the hand that lays hold of him and then won't let go. Gang, if your faith saves you, then when you get to heaven, you'll be able to boast. You know, the text that's in Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. There's no boasting going on in heaven. None of that boasting going on. When those, when those victors come rolling into heaven, like Jimmy was telling us, nobody's saying, I'm here because I had faith. Their, their longing is to, is to hold on to the leg of Jesus and never let go of him. because he is the grounds of our justification. He is the grounds. The righteousness of God becomes my possession as it is provided by this God. All of his demands are met and provided by himself. And I lay hold of those by taking hold of Jesus Christ the Savior. And when I say that to people, they can't quite get, oh, what do you mean? I don't need to die. And of course I say, of course you do. Uh, that's just a joke. Uh, no, no, you missed it. I don't need to teach Sunday school. Of course you need to teach Sunday school. But none of those things justify. Um, none of those things give me that righteousness of God that Paul is proclaiming here. Um, it is never faith that saves us. Faith is no part of that righteousness. It is only the instrument, not the cause. Now, gang, but it's not just any old generalized religious faith either. It's a faith that has an object. And the object of that faith is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you forget his person, you undercut his work. It is only his person that allows his work to be so efficacious.
Um, real quickly, um, in terms of saving faith, there are theologi uh, theological workbooks try to divide it up into component parts, and I've done this for you before, and uh, but this might be helpful for you in your own, I mean, you probably already have this down, but if not, just something good to help you. Uh, saving faith has three component parts to it. Number one is knowledge. Um, we got to hurry. And the other thing is a sense and then trust. Those three things comprise. It's, it's, it's not enough just to have the knowledge, but then I must believe that that knowledge is true knowledge and then rest myself in that, that true knowledge that I have heard about this Jesus Christ. Now, gang, um, there's something that's very important that's still left in our text. This sentence, for there is no difference. Now, this again is illusion. Once again, Paul is concerned about this Jew Gentile thing, and he is saying, uh, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference. It's the same for the Jew as it is for the Gentile. There's no method of difference or deviation from Jew to Gentile. The Jew doesn't do it one way and the Gentile another. No, no, for there is no difference between the two. Um, the Jew comes the same way as does the Gentile. Why? Because there's no difference in the need that the Jew has as a, compared to the Gentile. There, there's no difference in the moral standing that the Jew has from the Gentile. The, the relationship to God for the Jew and the Gentile is not any different. The need is just as big, and for either one of them, faith is effective and is invariably effective to any of those persons who through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Forget whether they're Jew or Gentile or black or white or pink or green. Um, you know, it's interesting to me too, ladies and gentlemen, that the, you know Paul makes clear, and he's going to make it clearer, clearer, clearer some more in the next few weeks. But um, it's interesting that he's constantly underscoring that it is faith that joins us to the Savior. He does not do that with any other grace. For, for instance, do you not think humility is important? You know, I mention that an awful lot, don't I? Do y'all know why? <laughs> Stop that! Don't be laughing, you know why. <laughs> humility is a wonderful thing, isn't it? But what about love? Isn't love a wonderful thing? But never does the Bible attach saving graces to those beautiful attributes. Now, now, humility is important in the sight of God. Love is important in the sight of God indeed. But never does the Bible say, the way you do this is just be humble. And the way you do this is just love your neighbor. 
Is it good to love your neighbor? You bet it is. But never does the Bible attach anything to those graces that it attaches to faith. I want to read you a quote, and uh, and I'm, I'm finished. But I um, I think you all know that, um, if you don't, this is a good time to tell you, uh, that I have moved my office home. I have a, uh, I keep my mon- my morning office hours at home now, which has been a wonderful boon. And um, people have asked if I've noticed any difference. And I've said, well, yeah, and, and this is how I've told them the difference. Um, I have in my library probably 10 commentaries on the, the book of Romans. Um, maybe more, but let's just use the number 10. If I study for Romans in my office, I usually get time to read three of them. If I study at my house for Romans, I get to read all 10 of them. The reason I say that is because the the grandfather of commentaries on Romans, I wonder if any, any of you know who this is. I mean, uh, everybody might say Lloyd-Jones, or but Lloyd-Jones is not the grandfather of commentaries on Romans. And I have to tell you, when I've taught Romans in the past, I've never had time to read this other commentary. And I've got, I'm reading all 10 of them now, but the, the grandfather of them all is not Hodge either. The grandfather is Haldane. Haldane wrote his, and then Hodge wrote his, and then Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote his, and then you've got a few uh, others. There's, uh, um, Ray Steadman's got one, and uh, you know, Ray Steadman's in the 60s, good brother, but the, the one that you find as you work through uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the one that you find them referring to is Haldane. Uh, but I say all of that to say this. I got one quote from Haldane that I want to leave you with. And I read it to my wife and she said, I didn't understand that. So I'm going to try to make this real, real clear. But we have been talking about faith. Listen to this that Haldane says about faith. Thus, faith triumphs over self-unworthiness and sin and death and the law, shrouding the soul under the mantle of Christ, and there it is safe. I'm not sure anybody was moved by that. But did you hear that, guys? Faith triumphs over all self-unworthiness. Are we a bunch of corrupt people? You bet we are. And and faith triumphs over all self-unworthiness and sin and death and law. And then it is that faith that shrouds, it covers, it robes the soul underneath the mantle of Christ. And there she is safe. Faith triumphs over all of our wickedness. Oh, 
hides us under the mantle of Christ. And now, we are safe. Boy, that's a gospel to preach. Let's go. Father, I I pray that um, I have not confused your people in any way. And that if I have misrepresented that you would stop up their ears. But if you, um, if, if there's been something that has been said here aright, I pray that you will use it to warm the hearts of your people. As we remember that it is not humility, although we want to be humble. It is not faith. It is, I mean, it is not love. Um, it's not service. All of those things that we fail at. But it is faith that has triumphed over all of our unworthiness, all of our sin, all of the law. And it is faith that has covered us in the mantle of Jesus Christ, hidden beneath his robes. And we are now eternally safe. people feed off that for days. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.